Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. All right. Well, you've probably all read books or uh, seen movies with surprise endings, conclusions that you just didn't see coming. And probably the most stunning surprise ending that I've ever seen is in a 1979 movie called Being There, starring Peter Sellers. Has anybody seen this movie? Okay, a few of you have seen Being There. It, it was released in 1979. It's 40 years old, so if you haven't seen it yet, I actually don't mind spoiling the ending for you uh, this morning. If you haven't seen it, you know, in 40 years, you might not ever see it. So um, in this movie, Peter Sellers, the actor, plays an individual named Chance the Gardener. Um, he's a kind of a secluded, simple-minded Forrest Gump character, only a little bit older. He's in his 60s. And um, he has served this man his entire life as a gardener. But when the man dies, he finds himself out alone on the streets of Washington, D.C. Um, and the only thing that Chance really knows is from his gardening and what he has seen on television in this man's house over his many years being there. But through this series of bizarre, inexplicable events, he is believed to be named Chauncey Gardner instead of Chance the Gardener. And his obliviousness to the world is actually mistaken as brilliance, and he's regarded as a man of profound wisdom and insight, and actually becomes an advisor to the highest ranks in Washington, D.C., even to the President of the United States. And as the movie draws to a close, we see Chance strolling up to the edge of a pond. And after reflecting there for a few moments, he begins to cross the pond by walking on water. And that's how the film ends. And you're just thinking, what in the world just happened? It's not a sci-fi sci film. And it's possible that you could interpret the message of the film as life is governed by chance. Or even chance is God. Because we've come to associate walking on water as a divine action. In the Gospels, we discover that it's Jesus who walks on water. But don't forget that in the Gospel passages, it's not just Jesus who walks on the water. Peter walks on the water too. So walking on the water teaches us important truths about the identity of Jesus and who Jesus is, but it also teaches us important things about the character of Peter. And ultimately, walking on water teaches us important truths about the essence of biblical faith. Walking on water teaches us important things about the essence of biblical faith. And so that's what I want to consider with you this morning. Walking on water, a lesson in biblical faith from Matthew chapter 14, verses 22 through 33. And so uh, turn there in your Bibles this morning, Matthew chapter 14. We're going to read verses 22 to 33. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, as usual, you should be able to find one um, beneath one of the chairs in front of you. You can turn there to the New Testament book of Matthew. Again, we're going to begin our reading in verse 22 and read through verse 33. Let's stand for the reading of Scripture. This is after Jesus feeds the 5,000. And we pick up in verse 22 and it says, Immediately he made the disciples, this is Jesus, get into the boat and go before him to the other side. While he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. 
And in the fourth watch of the night, which would have been between 3 and 6 a.m., he came to them walking on the sea. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, Take heart, it is I. Don't be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. And Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. This is the reading of God's word. May he add his blessing to it and to the preaching. You may be seated. Walking on water, a lesson in biblical faith. Let's begin by considering this in a very general way, the exercise of faith. The exercise of faith. Now sometimes faith is seen as the enemy of reason and rational thought. For example, comedian Bill Maher claims this. Faith means the purposeful suspension of critical thinking. It is nothing to be admired. Now, you may or may not agree with this sentiment, but within this view, not only is faith something not to be admired, it actually can be something to be ridiculed. William Harwood says this, the difference between faith and insanity is that faith is the ability to hold firmly to a conclusion that is incompatible with the evidence, whereas insanity is the ability to hold firmly to a conclusion that is incompatible with the evidence. In other words, there's no difference between the exercise of faith and insanity. Now, people might find these things humorous as they claim them, but the problem with thinking that they're true is that we exercise faith all the time. We have exercised faith in countless ways already this morning. Perhaps for you it was you got up, had a bowl of cereal, served cereal to your children, and it was an exercise of faith that that cereal had not been poisoned by a deranged Kellogg's employee, or that your milk was not contaminated, or that you have safe drinking water in your home. You don't know these things with certainty. It was an exercise of faith. Or if you drove to church this morning and went through a traffic light, you exercised faith that if your light was green, cross-traffic's light was red. Unless you check every single time before you go through an intersection. Most of us don't do that. We just exercise faith that the traffic lights are working properly and we exercise faith that the person coming at us at 40 miles an hour is going to stay in his or her lane. We're exercising faith in those things. We're all exercising a measure of faith right now, sitting in this sanctuary, trusting that these support beams are sufficient to keep this roof from collapsing on our heads. To be honest with you, I don't know anything about the strength of these support structures in this sanctuary. I didn't build them. I've never inspected them. Have you ever inspected the strength of the support structures in this sanctuary? I haven't. I just come in here and sit down and assume by the exercise of faith that I'm safe. And perhaps you're going to go out to eat after service today and you're going to have to exercise faith that people that you don't know and people that you will never see are going to prepare your meal adequately 
and they're not going to get their kicks by spitting on your food before they bring it out to you. I'm sorry. <laughs> Nobody wants to go out to eat after service now. It's still true, though. If you do, you're going to have to exercise faith in the... You don't know who's cooking your food. You don't know who's bringing it out. You don't know what they've done to it while they've cooked it. You don't know. And the truth is simply that the very nature of our, of our existence requires the exercise of faith. It just does. It's hardly a suspension of critical thinking, and it's hardly insanity to exercise faith. Philosopher and theologian Blaise Pascal in the 1600s is much more fair and much more accurate when he says, faith certainly tells us what the senses do not, but not to the contrary of our, sen of our senses. Faith is above, not against them. And that's just true. Faith is above our senses. It doesn't necessarily operate contrary to them. But Hebrews chapter 11 verse 1 adds to this. Describes faith this way. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. We have to operate on the basis of faith. Because we don't know everything. And we can't see everything. We can't see the future. So the truth is unless you're being paid up front for the work that you do, your working for an income is an act of faith. You're trusting that the people that say they're going to pay you are going to pay you after the fact. And when you deposit that money that you earn in a bank, that's an act of faith that that bank is not going to lose your money or steal your money. Just as planting crops, taking medicine, and marrying a spouse are all acts of faith in things that we can't yet see. Faith is simply necessary in life. And faith is simply necessary when it comes to questions about the existence of God as well. We have to operate on the basis of faith there. Hebrews chapter 11 later in verse 6 goes on to say, without faith it is impossible to please God. It's impossible to please God without faith because whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and must believe certain things about him, that he rewards those who seek him. Listen, to declare that God exists is a statement of faith. It's a statement of belief. That doesn't mean it's not true. That doesn't mean it's not reasonable. It's highly reasonable to assert that God exists. And the Christian faith as a whole is rationally defensible. That's the whole task and enterprise of Christian apologetics. But to say that God exists is still a statement of faith. It's a belief. And at the same time, the atheist who makes the claim that God does not exist is not stating a fact of science. It's, it's a statement of unbelief. Both the one who believes in God and the atheist are drawing conclusions in the realm of faith. What is it that you believe? Some people look at the vastness of the universe and see all the moral depravity and decay around us and conclude that there's no evidence whatsoever that a God exists. Other people look at the exact same data and see the fine-tuning of the universe, feel the sense that we live in a universe with objective morality, and we look at the amazing design of the human body and conclude that there must be a creator and a designer. Looking at the same data. What could explain that? Well, to quote Pascal once again, he says... In faith, there is enough light for those who want to believe and enough shadows to blind those who don't. 
And that's true. I think Pascal is right. But notice what he says here. That there are those who want to believe and those who don't want to believe. And so we're reminded that unbelief in God, failure to exercise faith that there is a God, is not in the end a result of lacking sufficient evidence for his existence. That's not what's at issue here. On the contrary, the Apostle Paul reminds us in these familiar words of Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. He says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible unseen attributes namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so those in unbelief are without excuse without excuse it's not a lack of evidence it's a hardness of heart or as one person puts it this way atheism is not the result of an objective assessment of evidence It's the result of stubborn disobedience. If you're wondering who said that, it was Jim Spiegel in his book, The Making of an Atheist. But here's the thing. Not only do we have creation bearing witness to the existence of God, God has spoken to us. We have the revelation of himself. We have his word testifying to his existence. And so the question for us much like it was in Eden, is not simply, do you believe in him? Do you believe that he exists? It's more than that. The question is not simply that, it's do you believe him? Adam and Eve had no question about God's existence. The issue that confronted them was not do you believe in him, do you believe him? Do you believe his word? Do you believe what he says? And that leads to an exercise of faith, but it also leads us to the second thing, and that is understanding the nature of faith. To believe what he says, what does that mean? What is the nature of biblical faith? Well, historically, Protestants have understood faith to consist of three things, three components. And the first is knowledge. If you're going to say that you believe what the Bible teaches, you have to have some knowledge of what's in the Bible. You have to have a knowledge of what claims the Bible makes. If you're going to say you believe in Jesus, you have to have some knowledge of who Jesus is and who he claims to be. So that's that's a basic component of faith. But most of you are intuiting right now that it has to be more than that. And there is more than that. The second component is intellectual assent or agreement. You have to nod your head that what the Bible uh, contains is true. What it says about God, what it says about you, what it says about the world you live in, you nod your head in agreement that it's true. You give intellectual assent or agreement to those claims. It means that you nod your head in agreement that Jesus is the Messiah and who he claims to be, the Lord, the King, the Savior, who died on the cross and has risen again from the dead. But we are easily tempted to conclude that this is the essential element of biblical faith, intellectual acceptance of a statement as true, that this is what it all boils down to. But the problem with that, if it stops here, is that the devil and his demons give intellectual assent 
to truth claims of Scripture, that God exists, that he is the creator and redeemer of his people through Jesus, the Holy One, sent to save his people. The demons are even uttering that in the New Testament. The devil believes that God exists. What they lack, however, is at the level of the heart, a submissive heart. What they lack is the third component of biblical faith, and that's trust. I'm sorry that didn't come out very well. I don't know if if you can see that very well. But that third element is trust. Trust. And this is the critical part when it comes to relationships. This trust element. I mean, every banker, every fiancé knows that this is the critical part. A banker doesn't want you just to nod your head in agreement that that bank is going to handle your money well. They want you to actually deposit your money in the bank a fiancé doesn't want you just to have intellectual agreement that, yeah, you'd be a worthy life partner. They want you to commit to them in trust. That's biblical faith. God doesn't simply want you to accept that he exists. He doesn't want your intellectual assent to a set of facts. He wants you to trust him. He wants you to give him your heart. He wants you to heed his voice. He wants you to hand over the direction of your life and the ordering of your steps to him. Even if the ordering of those steps seems to lead you to a place that is unstable as water. That's what he's calling us to give. And this is what we see from Peter in our passage. This kind of biblical faith in the display of of trust. Let's read again in verses 25 through 29. In the fourth watch of the night, Jesus comes to his disciples walking on the sea. There's wind, there's waves. When the disciples see him walking on the sea, they're terrified and they think it's a ghost because people don't ordinarily walk on the water. And remember, it's, it's stormy, it's three, four, five o'clock in the morning, and so they cry out in fear. But Jesus immediately speaks to them, he says, Take heart, it is I. Don't be afraid. And then Peter speaks up. He says, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. And Jesus says, come. And listen to this. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. Peter didn't just give intellectual assent to the presence and power of Jesus on the water. He got out of the boat at Jesus' command. This is biblical faith. To trust. To take that step. Listen, the nature of biblical faith is not to just nod your head in agreement that a rope is strong enough to support your weight as you swing out across a, a chasm. Biblical faith is actually taking hold of that rope and putting your whole weight to bear upon that rope and then swinging out. The nature of biblical faith is not to nod your head in agreement that that ice-covered pond, that the ice is capable of supporting your weight as you cross it. Biblical faith is stepping out onto that ice, letting it support the fullness of your body weight, and walking across to the other side. The nature of biblical faith is trust. It's not simply intellectually agreeing with Scripture. It's committing your whole heart and life to the living God as your Lord. Now, I acknowledge that most of us aren't encountering Jesus on a lake and being invited to walk on water. So what does biblical faith and trust look like in our lives? What does this mean for us? 
Well, it can mean all kinds of things and come to all kinds of expressions. But perhaps it's confessing a sin to someone and you don't know how they're going to react. Perhaps it's extending forgiveness to someone who has wronged you and you don't know what that's going to mean in the future moving forward. Perhaps it's confronting someone with a very sensitive issue that they need to deal with in their life. It's confronting them in love, not knowing how they're going to respond. And perhaps it's waiting patiently for the Lord to vindicate your cause and your reputation rather than you vindicating yourself. It's waiting patiently and trustingly for the Lord to take up your cause. Perhaps it's sharing the gospel with someone at work, not knowing how that's going to affect your relationship. Maybe it's doing the honest thing at work, even though doing the honest thing at work may decrease your chances of advancement at your place of work, but trusting the Lord to deal with the fallout from that. And maybe it's tithing your income. Maybe it's taking steps toward tithing your income in trust. It can mean all kinds of things, but it's, this, is, this is trusting. This is biblical faith. And so the question that we need to ask ourselves this morning is, are we trusting the Lord with our lives, with all the aspects and components of our lives? Are there, are there things that we're not trusting him with? Are we staying in the boat and just nodding our head in agreement? God's not calling us to just nod our head in agreement. He's calling us to trust him, to trust him like Peter does here. But you might be thinking, do we really want to use Peter as an example of biblical faith? Because after all, no sooner is Peter on the water that we read in verse 30. When he saw the wind, he was afraid, and he starts to sink. And then in verse 31, Jesus says to Peter, this Peter who just got out of the boat and was walking on water, Jesus says to him, oh, you have little faith. Little faith. Why did you doubt so maybe we don't want to use Peter as an example of biblical faith, but I would assert that we do. Because yes, Peter's faith may have wavered and it may have shrunk, but Peter reminds us of the importance of the object of faith. And that's the third thing that we need to consider, the object of faith. Yes, Peter's faith wavered, shrunk, but his faith was in the right object and that makes all the difference. The object of faith. The object of faith is actually the most important component to consider because here's the truth. Our faith, no matter how strong that faith is, can still be misplaced faith. We can be deceived. That ice might break. That rope might fray. That money might steal our bank. Sorry, that bank might steal our money. <laughs> All those things can happen. That cereal could be poisoned. That milk can be contaminated. We can be deceived in all of those things. Here's the thing though. Our faith does not alter the object of our faith whatsoever. The object of our faith is either worthy of our trust or it's not worthy of our trust. And our faith isn't going to alter that. We can be deceived. But Jesus does not deceive us. He is worthy of our trust. It doesn't come out well in English translations, but in verse 27, when Jesus says, take heart, it is I. What he actually says is, take heart, 
I am. It's the same phrase that we see repeatedly in John's gospel. I am. A likely reference to God's revelation of himself to Moses in Exodus chapter 3 as the deliverer and redeemer of his people from bondage. Jesus is the divine I am who does the impossible. He walks on water. All power has been given to him. Nothing is too hard for him. And he says to you, don't be afraid. Trust me. Don't be afraid. Trust me. But we're so often like Peter. We get distracted from the object of our faith and we fixate on the wind and the waves of our circumstances and we begin to sink in doubt and in fear and become paralyzed in those things. Yes, Peter shows courage here. Peter shows faith here, but Peter shows weakness here. As he does at other points in his life, Peter's gonna stumble to the point that he denies Jesus three times even after this. And so what we should be prepared for is that we're gonna have to daily face adversaries and obstacles in the exercise of our faith in placing our trust in Jesus. We're going to encounter battles where our weakness is exposed. We become weak in the midst of the storms of life. We struggle with doubt and with fear and we falter. But here's the thing to remember. Little faith and weak faith is not the same as no faith. Jesus doesn't say Peter has no faith. He calls him a person of little faith. Why did you doubt? But little faith and weak faith is not the same as no faith. And what Peter still gets right, even in the weakness of his faith and the smallness of his faith, is he looks at the object. Lord, save me. Right? Even in the weakness and smallness of his faith, he's looking to the object of Jesus and saying, Lord, save me. Because biblical faith sets its gaze on Jesus as the object of faith. But... That faith must do that again and again, repeatedly. We must put our trust in Jesus over and over again. Month by month, week by week, day by day, hour by hour, moment by moment. Faith is not a one-time event. We have to repeatedly and continually look to Jesus, put our faith in him, and trust him every moment. Martin Lloyd-Jones said it like this. It does not matter how long you have been in the Christian life. You are dependent upon him for every step. Without him, we can do nothing. You cannot live on one climactic experience. You must keep on looking to him every day. We walk by faith, and you live by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you might be thinking, yeah, I know, and, and sometimes I get that right. <laughs> And sometimes I don't. I get distracted. I've got doubts. I've got fears. Well, be encouraged. Keep looking. There's adversaries. It's a battle. Stay in the fight. But remember this. In the midst of the fight, remember what B.B. Warfield says. It's very important. He says it is not strictly speaking, even faith in Christ that saves, but Christ that saves through faith. The saving power resides exclusively not in the act of faith or the attitude of faith or nature of faith. The saving power resides exclusively in the object of faith. Listen, your faith unites you to your Savior. That's true. It's important. But your faith is not your Savior. 
even your most heroic acts of faith will not save you. Jesus saves you by means of faith in him. And the reason that's of such great encouragement is that even if you stumble in the weakness of your faith in the midst of life's waves and storms and trials, even when you're sinking in doubt and battling intense fears, it means you can cry out to him and his hand will reach you. His hand will reach you and he will not lose you. Nothing can separate you from his love. Nothing can pluck you from his hand. So what that means is we can stand confident even when life feels as unstable as water. We can take confidence not because of the strength of our faith but because of the power and faithfulness of the object of our faith. The one who is able to keep us from falling. And so we look to him. The story is told of a man who slips while rock climbing. And he's able to grab a branch as he's falling that's sticking out of the side of the cliff. And that stops his descent. But he realizes after he stops that he looks down and he's 100 feet from the bottom. And he looks up and he's 100 feet from the top with nothing in between. And he begins crying out, please, is there anyone that can help me? And then God's voice thunders from heaven and says, yes, I'll help you. Let go of the branch and I'll catch you. The man looks down, he doesn't see anything. And he looks up and he says, is there anybody up there that can help me with a rope? Trusting is not easy for us a lot of the times. But here's the reality for all of us. We're all going to get to a point where we find ourselves at the precipice of this life and the next. This life and eternity. And there is no scientific proof of what awaits us on the other side. The only thing we have is the word of God and the promise of the reigning risen Christ who says, I'll catch you. Trust me. I'll usher you in to eternal life. Trust me. Do you believe him? Are you trusting him? Are you trusting him in this life and trusting him for the next? You know, Peter's walking on water illustrates that coming to Jesus is a supernatural thing. Coming to Jesus requires a divine miracle, and the divine miracle is the exercise of faith. It has to be given by the Holy Spirit, but it's a gift that the Spirit delights to give. And so if you want this biblical faith in the one who can deliver you and rescue you and usher you in to eternal life and glory, ask, and it will be given. Knock, and the door will be opened for you to walk by faith, fixing your eyes on Jesus, your Savior. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, we pray for more faith. Lord, would you increase our faith knowing that you are powerful, nothing is impossible for you, and you call us to trust you. And you have convinced us by coming and giving your life for us out of love that you are worthy of our trust. Help us to trust you and to trust you more as we look to you in faith. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.